It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. It's been a grim year for economic news, but as COVID caused markets to tumble and economies to teeter on the brink, one commodity seemed to be having a bonanza year. Welcome back to Asia tonight. It's time for business news now. Those gold prices have hit an all-time high. Gold surged to its highest in nearly eight years yesterday as mounting fears of a resurgence of new coronavirus cases kept safe haven demand for gold alive. But as gold markets surged to record highs, what's the real price of the precious metal that means so much to so many people? You might be wearing it now, but do you know where it's come from? The children that you see, they're everywhere from six years old to 12 or 13. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, child labour inside Ghana's illegal gold mines. We met Sophie when we were in this clearing in the forest where there was an illegal mine. Sophie is just 12 years old and lives with her family in rural Ghana. She was standing in the shallows, kind of up to her ankles, in this gold mine. And she was searching through the mud and picking through the mud with her fingers. The voice you can hear is Louise Callahan, a foreign correspondent for the Sunday Times. She's telling me about her investigation into the unlicensed gold mining trade. And she said she'd been to school that day. And so we got chatting to her and she was, she was happy to talk. What she found in the mines were thousands of working children like Sophie. She told us that one of the little kids who were sitting nearby was her little brother. And so she was looking after him and, and after school they'd go together to the mine, search through this mud to look for these tiny flecks of gold. And she'd been doing it for a while. She said that with the money that she got from mining, she could buy textbooks. I mean, the, the majority of miners definitely are young men who work in teams and it's a slightly more organised effort. And then the children that you see, they're everywhere from six years old to you know, 12 or 13. Sometimes they might go there after school and have you know, only the most basic equipment, uh, like a sieve, or sometimes they even go through the mud in their hands to just look for these tiny little flecks of gold. For so many people around the world, gold holds real meaning. Your wedding ring is made of gold. It, you know, money is made of gold. It has this kind of, has a lot of, a big emotional resonance to it. So why is it that we know so little about where it comes from? Of course, we've had so many stories. You know, I'm sure you'll remember about conflict diamonds from Sierra Leone. But the gold industry is is huge. It's worth billions and billions of dollars. And I think for many ordinary people, you, you don't know where your gold comes from. You buy a ring at High Street Jewelers. Where does that gold come from? Usually, you'd find Louise Callahan hard at work somewhere in the Middle East. Turkey, Iraq, Lebanon... But for this investigation, she went straight to the source, 
one of the many unlicensed gold mines in Ghana, on the west coast of Africa. If you're standing in a, a kind of clearing of this huge forest and you've driven for hours and hours seeing no one, seeing nothing but, but trees, roads that are just covered in red dust with nothing else on them, and then you stand in the middle of this clearing and, and you see that it's this filled with people, there's people all around you, so that sometimes in, in some of the mines there were hundreds of people who were sort of clambering over piles of mud, this kind of beige slurry. There's nothing particularly high-tech going on there. Some will just have a kind of sieve where they push the mud through and look for flecks of gold. Some of the adults have diggers and machines. But it's just this picture of chaos, basically, in the middle of the jungle. There's the kind of roar of the machines, there's the shouts of people yelling at each other saying, you know, go over there, pick up this bag of tools. And then there's also the sound of, of water being blown from hoses. Because uh, miners use these hoses to blast apart the, these muddy banks in order to loosen the earth so that they can go through it and look for gold. Critical to this investigation was Louise's local contact, Desmond Akudbila. Desmond is from Ghana and he knows this story really well. He's an incredible journalist. He spent months undercover, you know, in these tiny villages, gaining the trust of local people and working on various stories. So I, I knew I wanted to work with him. I was a private investigator and I've been in this for the past seven years. So is that how you describe yourself as a private investigator and a journalist? Even though it was related to journalism, I don't see myself much into journalism. But it wasn't a difficult thing for me because I already had an insight and knew where all these activities were taking place. Desmond knows the industry well because he actually grew up around these communities. I was born there. I grew up there. Did you ever work in the mines? I didn't work directly in the mines, but I used to sell staffs at the mines. So I used to take foodstuffs like rice because sometimes that place, they find it difficult to come to town to get food. So I used to go there and sell when I was in a busy school to make some small money to out of it. So indirectly, I was working there. But when it comes to gold mining, for children like Sophie, and even for adults, there's a lot of danger involved. She was working with mercury, which is used by these small-scale miners to separate the gold from surrounding minerals. She said she knew it could make people sick, but she didn't, I don't think she quite realised the extent to which it was probably dangerous for her. And aside from the mercury, you know, which can have a very long-term effect on your health, there's also the really basic levels of danger inherent in gold mining. You know, a lot of these people can't swim and they're standing in, in water, which can get quite deep. There's the risk of machinery breaking, hurting them. And then there's also, sadly, the risk of childhood sexual exploitation. That was something that a lot of the NGOs that we spoke to told us happened. And I spoke to a young girl, maybe 13 years old, at another mine who told me, yeah, that this is a risk, this is something we're all afraid of. And so I think even though kids like Sophie, for example, said, you know, I'm happy I can dig this gold and help my family, it's all these factors come together to make it just an incredibly dangerous thing for children to do. Their parents, the people living in these villages in this area, they're cocoa farmers. And the chemicals that are used in mining and, of course, the fact that, you know, they dig up the forest in order to mine there, it destroys plantations. So, you know, it can completely destroy a local economy. 
and it also gets into the the water in the village. So in Sophie's village, for example, even though they were surrounded by water, everyone was drinking bottled water because of the chemicals and you know the pollution that had made it into the the water that ran through the forest. Sophie was twelve years old. Pretty much every day after school, she went she went down to that mine. The mine Sophie works in is one of many illegal mines. For some reason, they're often referred to as artisanal mines, which I, I think makes it sound slightly fancier than it is. But in Ghana, there are plenty of legal mines, and a lot of these are you know run by multinationals, and they and they work in quite a you know efficient and regulated way. But then there are all these illegal mines which are completely unregulated and which are owned by a you know wide number of people, from local people to you know Chinese investors which have come over in order to take advantage of this. I mean, it was so bizarre. It was so deep in the when we were working really deep in the forest. Sometimes we'd see these Chinese guys in their mid fifties in big SUVs just drive past us. And quite often when we were really deep in the forest, me and, and John, one of my co-writers, would get out of the car and the these crowds of little children would run up to us and sit and point to us and say, Chinese, Chinese. And neither of us looked Chinese, but they just met so many that they kind of just assumed that that's what we were. Wow. We even saw along some roads that they'd started opening canteens for Chinese workers and all the signs were in Chinese and selling sort of Sichuan cuisine. Sophie sold the gold she'd found to a local buyer named Sam. And she told us where he lived and we went to see him. Sam is a low-level buyer. He works out of this kind of semi-ramshackle lean-to. So he collects these tiny amounts of the gold from the kids and from other miners. I mean, these bits of gold are incredibly small. Um, He collects them together and he then sells them to another trader... The next trader is in a nearby town, and they then sell it on to someone else in another town, and so on, until eventually it ends up in Accra, the capital city. We were driving through the forest for for days following this trail. We'd go see the next trader and we'd say, where do you send to? And they'd tell us, and then we'd carry on. But by the time we got to Accra, it was a legitimate-looking place. You know, like it, it went from... Sophie digging in the mine to this guy in his lean-to, to a guy in a slightly bigger office, and then to what looked like a, a big factory in Ghana, and it had a you know a security gate and a guard, it has a receptionist. The guys inside are wearing suits. All of a sudden, it, it got very official. And what's actually really important to note is that by the time the gold gets to Accra, then it is with a trader, which is licensed by Ghana's precious minerals marketing company. So it basically becomes officially approved. This means the gold is licensed for export. So by the time the gold leaves Ghana, it's got an official stamp on it and it, you know, the exploitative origins of the gold are obscured. So we asked the final exporter in Accra where he sold it to. Uh, he told us he, he sells to all over the world, but particularly to this one place in Dubai. So I went to Dubai where I found the next stage in the chain. Dubai is famed for its gold market, otherwise known as the Dubai Gold Souk. It's a famous tourism hotspot, and it's rather popular with online influencers now too. Did you know that Dubai's nickname used to be the City of Gold? I didn't either. But today we're going to find out how it got that name. Let's go. If you haven't been there, it's this really weird kind of sanitised version of a market which is 
looks like it's made for tourists, right? It's been really spruced up by the government. So it's very genteel and all the gold is laid out on these little cushions and, you know, it looks very fancy. But the real trading happens behind the scenes. The real gold souk, where the real trading goes on, is a few kind of streets behind it. And there, you know, it's this very unglamorous jumble of print shops, wholesalers, photocopying machines, all these people stuck together in these office buildings just flogging gold. I'd been told that this trader that the people in Accra sold to, that they sold to someone else who had an office there. So we're now on sort of, I don't know, stage 10 of, of this trade. The tourists who are there, they go to buy jewellery, right? So that's lots of different kinds. You get the kind of Indian style, like highly ornate, very high carat, filigree gold. Or you get big chains of the stuff or tiny little dainty rings or, or earrings. But then what the traders sell is gold dore, which is kind of partially refined gold, or nuggets of gold, which can be really tiny. But then by the time that they're readying them for export, then they're, they're in these kind of refined pressed bars. So one of the traders that I met in the gold suit, he called for one of his colleagues to get out a kilo bar of gold, which is worth about £40,000. And he gave it to me to hold. And it was really, it was really heavy. (laughs) And it was just so fascinating. You know, it looked extremely official. It had this, you know, refined in X place and markings on it. And it was really fascinating to think that the gold that had been mined by kids like Sophie eventually ended up in bars like this. Once the gold arrives in Dubai, it's sold between a chain of different traders. The final trader Louise met explained that he then sells the gold onto international buyers. Dubai is this kind of amazing centre of the gold trade. And so traders there, they sell to India, they sell to Switzerland, they send to the UK. But this trader in particular told me that he's sold to Credit Suisse. And Credit Suisse is obviously this huge institution. It does everything from sort of mortgages to wealth management, but it also deals with physical gold sales. This is where all the international regulation comes into question. Credit Suisse, the Swiss bank, claim that they only accept gold bars approved by the LBMA. LBMA is the London Bullion Market Association. It has these requirements that gold comes from responsible sources that avoid the exploitation of child labour and various other things, including human rights abuses. There's all these banks and all of these high street jewellers and many organisations have signed up to regulations that should mean that the gold that they buy is not coming from exploitative sources. But the thing is that we've found a lot of holes in this system. Because it's such a complicated and long supply chain, it is possible, you know, at almost all stages of the supply chain, that dirty gold can sort of come in with with the stuff that's been legal and cleared. You know, gold, just by its, you know, essence, it can be melted down, it can be repackaged, and it can make the tracing of its exact source extremely difficult. How do you define dirty gold? Well, gold that comes from exploitative origins, right, where child labour can be involved or human rights abuses or environmental degradation. You know, this this can mean so many different things. Blood diamonds almost. Exactly. I really do feel like a lot of the banks and the institutions that buy gold in the West, they feel like because they've signed up to these regulations, they can say, oh, well, we've done our bit. You know, that that's it. We've, we've made sure that our gold is responsibly sourced. But I think it's clear that 
you know, it's not that easy. There are these gaps in the system that allow gold from exploitative origins to be sold legitimately. And you know, there's, there was a report this summer by this NGO called Swiss Aid, which showed that even gold that was sold under the so-called good delivery system, that there were some holes in that where gold that was that came from Sudan, from possibly exploitative origins, had ended up with one of the world's largest gold refineries. So the system isn't watertight, and I think it's disingenuous of the gold buyers in the West to pretend that it is. With this many stages in the supply chain, just by following the supply route that Sophie's gold went on, it's what, half a dozen stops before you've even left Ghana. It's incredibly hard to certify the origins of, of this gold. And gold can be melted, it can be reshaped, it can, it can be sold, it's, its origins obscured. And in that sense, there are these huge leaks in the supply chain which make it possible, despite regulations and despite you know, the seeming good faith of jewellers and gold buyers in the UK, for gold that comes from exploitative origins to end up alongside legitimate gold you know, being sold in Europe. And do you have any sense, just on the question of, of the child miners, do you have any sense of how broad that problem is? Every single illegal mine that we went to in Ghana had kids working there. And some of that was on a really ad hoc basis. They just come after school and some of them spent all day there working, you know, on the edges of the more organized mining teams, carrying water, sifting through mud, that kind of thing. It's impossible to put, you know, an accurate figure on how many kids are involved uh, in gold mining. But NGO workers told us that it's thousands and it's that it's across the whole of the country and all the mining areas. That is a real problem just for, you know, not only environmental damage, but also for social cohesion. Kids drop out of school, they get sick and it can cause families to fall apart. We'll be back with more in just a moment. You can get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free on a digital subscription. Search for thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. The government in Ghana says it's trying to stamp out unlicensed mining, describing the trade as a menace that threatens the survival of our country. But there are many barriers in the way. A lack of money, corruption, the scale, and even a lack of support from within communities who've come to rely on the unlicensed mines for income. It's a very political problem. Very, very political. Desmond Akadbila says there's a lot of pressure on the government to do something about the problem. One of the major problems is unemployment rate is very high. And when you go to these unlicensed mining sectors, they employ chunk of the youth. So when the government decided to crack down on all illegal mining activities in the country, it affected employment rate within those communities. And people are blaming the government for creating that unemployment situation or fighting against illegal mining. Illegal mines flourish in communities that are already struggling. Lack of education, most of them, the illiteracy rates at these places is very high. And so they always see kids as source of earning income. If you have a small child who is able to go to the mines and make money, 
So when you go to these communities, they don't have any problem. They don't have any issue relating to children being engaged in mining. Because they think it even reduces the burden on parents. Really? And some even go there with their parents to go and work. When all of these children are entering, you know, working in mining, what impact does it have on the community? As a result of mining, they don't go to school. They don't engage in any special training or any form of formal training that they could engage in to earn income. The problems are particularly apparent during the rainy season, according to Desmond, when workers sometimes turn to sex work when the mines are closed because of the bad weather. During that short time, if they are unable to make money, they have to engage themselves in armed robbery, prostitution, and other forms of illegal activities. You've talked about the pressure that the government is under. What would you like to see them doing? The government decided to halt and close all illegal mining sites, unlicensed mining activities, and then decided to organize a form of training so that all those who wanted to engage in would be trained. And as a result of that, you come and register. And it introduced something like a community mining, which the community will not lose that source of income it gets. And once you have something mm. like a community mining within every mining community, you are able to regulate it, prevent children from engaging in that mines, make sure that whenever they finish mining, they cover all pits, and pass through the government laid down regulations before you can be allowed to mine. But policies like this haven't been possible because it's seen as the government taking advantage and excluding poor villages from a source of income. Desmond believes the international community could have a role to play here. So I think if international communities are to also get in and then let the country know that this is not just about the government, but this is about what the international community has seen Ghana. This is how Ghana is not fighting child labour in the mining industry. Anytime the government takes a decision, the people will know that it's not from the government, but it's from the global world who have noticed how children are being exploited and used in the mining sector. So I think the international community needs to do more. And is the industry aware of the scale of the problem? Is the industry trying to do anything about it? The industry is 100% aware of the problem. You know, they, they know that this goes on. There's been, there was a very good report in 2015 by Human Rights Watch, you know, showing the issues of child gold mining in Ghana. The, the, the industry is aware of this, and this is why they've signed up to these regulations that they say is going to stop them from buying gold from exploitative origins. But I think what we've shown is that this isn't good enough, that there are still gaps in the supply chain that, that mean that this dirty gold can get to Europe. They are aware that the problem is still ongoing, but they still have not done enough. And for you, having covered this story and having travelled you know, around the world to see the scale of, of the industry and the scale of the problem, really, has it sort of changed the way you, you, you look at the industry or you look at gold? Absolutely. I mean, I had no idea. When we arrived in Ghana, I remember wondering, are we going to be able to find one of these mines? You know, they, might, they must be very hidden away. You know, maybe we're not going to find anything. But they were everywhere. You know, you drive into the forest for half an hour and you, you see them, you know, come up around you. It was so widespread. They were, the, you know, sprinkled across the forest. And also I was very surprised by exactly 
how much and on how so many levels this illegal gold mining can destroy communities, whether it's from environmental degradation or social problems or medical issues caused by the mercury that they use to separate the gold from other minerals. It had this kind of holistic, terrible effect on a community. And my colleague Desmond, uh, who I work with, he said that they had a saying in his village that the gold sinks like blood into the ground. Oh, wow. And I think that's what that's what he felt, what a lot of the local people who were concerned about illegal mining felt, was that the gold mining was destroying their way of life, and their communities, and actually seeping into, poisoning the ground in the forest so that they couldn't grow things. Is that what you think of now if you look at gold? Yeah, that's, that is how it feels. It's the... Um, Despite all the huge amounts of legislation and regulations that, that you know, are in force and I'm sure stop lots of illegal gold from being sold, it's just really clear that there are these gaps in the supply chain that mean that gold that is mined in these awful conditions can still make it into the legitimate market. And what responsibility do we have as consumers? You know, what, what can we be doing to try to ensure that we're only ever buying ethical gold? Well, there are lots of legitimate mines which take, you know, huge precautions and they sell directly to refiners in Europe and then onwards, you know, to, to the UK or to, to your local jewellers. And every time you buy gold, inquire about its origins and which refinery does this come from, which mine does this come from. And then look up that mine and it should have information there should be like website there should be information about the lengths that they've gone to in order to ensure that this exploitation cannot happen for sophie who you met at the start of this episode the story doesn't end when the gold she's collected is sold on to someone new the impact of the illegal gold trade on her community remains in Ghana, illegal mining can destroy communities. It can destroy farmland. It destroys water systems. We've seen how it can bring in childhood sexual exploitation. According to the school teacher that we spoke to, it can cause huge tensions in the community between kids who don't want to school and they want to spend their day digging for gold instead. They don't respect their parents anymore. It has such a wide ranging effect on a community. Even just, you know, the fact that they're digging up the cocoa farms, which is how people in this part of the world survive, in order to find gold. After you've turned an area into an illegal mine, you, you can't turn it into farmland again. The water is poisoned. The soil isn't good anymore. So in that sense, you know, it can really, really destroy communities. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, Middle East correspondent for the Sunday Times, Louise Callahan, and private investigator, Desmond Akadbila. You can read more of Louise's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producer today was Leona Hamid. The executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by Carla Patella. If you have a story you'd like us to look at, or any thoughts on what you've just heard, do send us an email at storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow. Subscribe today and get one month free at thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times.